Well, two sacraments this morning, a long text. We're going to get right to it this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 21. It's a lengthy passage. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 46. Follow along in your own Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen for you as I read out loud. And when he, that's Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? In other words, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Don't you wish you could argue like Jesus? (laughs) What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to this other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his sons to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of God may it stand forever. But you may be seated. Well, we continue our look at the various parables of Jesus in this morning, we Get two for the price of one. Our passage there ends with the people, the Pharisees and the scribes, the chief priests, afraid of Jesus because they understand that the crowd believed Jesus to be a prophet. Now that's a critical word that they would consider Jesus to be a prophet, but it is a scary word. 
There's a reason why they fear Jesus being a prophet. You see, the role of prophet is different than we usually imagine it being. We tend to think of prophets as being people who predict, like divinely predict the future. And certainly there's some places in the Old and New Testament where there's some people who appear to to speak with a a greater wisdom, maybe uh, information given by God of what's to come forward. But that is not the primary role and function of a prophet. The primary role and function of a prophet, if you were to think about it this way, is like a prosecutor. Is prophets were in prosecutorial investigators. That what we see in the prophets of the Old Testament is what they did is they came to the people of Israel and they laid before them the law of God and they said, hey, are you keeping this? And the answer was invariably, not so much. And then they would say that because you're not keeping this, this is the judgment and the wrath that is going to come down into your life. Being a prophet, you didn't want a prophet sauntering into your town. Some tough things were about to be said if a prophet showed up. And, and then they would, they would put, what they would do is they would put a people, a particular person or a king or perhaps the whole nation of Israel under the microscope of the law. And they were looking for evidence. Are they keeping the law of God? Are they being faithful to produce the fruits of what it is to be a covenant people who have been given the law of God's? And indeed, Jesus, in this passage, is a prophet. And so it means there's a tough day ahead for us. Jesus comes up here functioning in much the same way. He is coming to challenge and to question. He is evaluating the evidence and putting evidence before us and asking questions of us. In other words, he is holding us under the microscope. If you can imagine that what we get before us today on this particular Sunday, it's a tough Sunday, a tough text to look at this morning, but imagine kind of like you're in a boardroom, kind of a a, a pre-trial investigatory kind of meeting with a prosecutor, and he is putting evidence before you and looking for your response and your reaction. He is asking you questions. And real quickly, who is Jesus particularly asking questions of here in this text? Is it the people who are on the outs, or is it the people on the in, religiously? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the Israelites. The irony is because the scribes in particular, but the Pharisees as well, are people who know the law of God. They are deeply, deeply religious people. They are the spiritual elites. They are the legal elites. And yet Jesus is putting the religious people on trial. So welcome, religious people, to church. Jesus gets to put us on trial this morning to investigate us in this pre-trial hearing. And it's nice that it's a pre-trial hearing, because that's what it is. It is not the final day of judgment, praise the Lord. But Jesus, as the investigator, as the prosecutor here, is coming and he is going to ask us, as he looks across the table from us, and he's going to ask us essentially three questions from this text this morning that I want to ask you. Three questions that we're going to use to guide our time as we walk through this text. The first question is this. How are you responding to God's authority? The context of these parables that we read at the very beginning is that Jesus is it's actually the, the week before uh, coming up, leading up to Jesus' death. Uh, the day before this, or perhaps two days before this, Jesus has had the, the entry into Jerusalem, and then soon after his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus walks into the temple, throws over tables, and kicks out the, the various moneylenders who are there in the temple. And so they're coming to him. The Pharisees and the chief priests are coming to him, and they're kind of putting their hands on their hips and going, who put you in charge? 
Who made you the authority over the temple? And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to really answer that question. But then he essentially answers the question with two parables. In the context, Jesus is sharing in these parables. In both the parables, there's, a fa- there's an authority figure. First is the father who goes to the two sons. But the, the parable I really want to look at is the second one, which is the parable of the tenants, in which there is an owner. And what does the owner do? The owner, it says, and it makes it very clear in the parable, the owner purchases the land, he prepares the land, he plants his vineyard, so he's doing all the work, he puts fences around his vineyard so the wild animals and thieves can't get to the fruits, and he puts a watchtower up. In other words, what has he done? He has done all the work. And then he, all he does is he goes and he gets, he's going to go off on another business trip and go to various other places. And so he, he makes a contract with other people who will lease the land and simply harvest it at the right time. And so what is it saying? If someone owns the land, has prepared the land, has planted the vineyards, who has put the fences up, what do the people who've leased the land from him owe to him? Everything. They are tenants. In other words, the principle that has been communicated here in this parable is this, is Jesus is showing up and saying, God is the authority and is God's emissary. In fact, God him in the flesh coming into the earth, I am the authority. And the question is, as my tenants, are you going to submit to my authority? You mustn't, in other words, what he's looking at is looking at the tenants and saying, and those around him in this parable, he's saying, you are the tenants. And the question is, will you view your life as tenants? that all that you have belongs to me. In other words, he's pointing back to the fact that God is the one who created you, that God is the one who gave you the world that you live in, that God is the the fact that God, for example, all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve, who formed a beautiful garden, and all they had to do was produce what? The fruits of obedience by not eating from a tree. And then he does the same thing with Israel. He says, I prepared a great promised land for you. And actually, actually Jesus says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As they're getting ready to enter the promised land, this is what, what God comes to, through Moses and says to the people of Israel. This is chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 or 14. When the Lord your God brings you to the land, he swore to your fathers. And it says, there you'll find cities that you did not build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then you eat and are satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. What is he saying to the people of Israel? He's saying, I am the owner. I have done all that is necessary, and you are the tenants. Don't forget that. The the mindset of tenants is that all that I have belongs to you. That yes, I, oh, so, so this changes the way we view our life. It changes the way we view our, our finances. It changes the way we view our successes, right? My, the, the money I have is not actually mine, right? The great job I have is not actually mine. Well, I worked hard for that job. Yes, but who gave you the skills to work hard for that job? Who put you in the wealthiest country in the, the world has ever known, one pastor has put it this way, what a life as a tenant looks like is the sentiment of the heart is this, as if my life adds up to nothing more than kindly for a fire that burns to his glory, then we ought to say, Lord, make me the simplest log and burn me to your glory. That we are here for his glory. We are owned and possessed by him. And yet, what do we see in the, in the parable? Do they submit to the authority of the owner? No. The tenants... 
Just like the attitude of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes are looking at the owner of the parable and they're going, who put you in charge? I mean, just because you own everything. (laughs) Now, who would think that they could actually defy the commands and the authority of their creator, of the one who owns the lands, those who have forgotten that they are not owners, that they are tenants? See, so often we forget in God's world that we are, we, we think, we, we, we ought to believe that we're tenants, but we begin to think that we are the owners of this place. And we're the owners of our lives. The Bible tells us that it's the nature of the human heart to think of itself as an owner. We think of ourselves as the ones who own our lives. And there are all sorts of ways that one can act like an owner instead of like a tenant. God, you've given me this great gift of sexuality. And God says, I dictate how you're to use it and for whose glory you're to use it for. And you go, yeah, I'm the owner of my sexuality and I will use it in any way or shape I see. God says, I have given you your your wealth and I have provided for you. And you go, no, 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 no. My my wealth is not for your kingdom. I'm the one who owns my wealth. I'm going to decide how I'm going to use my money. And so the question, as Jesus looks across the table from the Pharisees and the scribes from the religious people, and yes, I'll look at you who are sitting in church and I ask you this question, how are you doing at submitting to God's authority? Do you live life as if you're a tenant, simply serving at the owner's behest? Or have you begun to look at yourself as the owner, the owner of your life? That's question one. It gets more probing from here. Second, second question, how are you responding to God's confrontation? How are you responding to God's confrontation? The reality is this, is ever since the fall of man, this is the issue is that we have rejected God's authority. This is not just a problem for religious people. This is a problem for everybody who walks the face of the earth. As the God says, I am the king and I am the Lord, and we have said, nah, not so much. We are the owners of this place. We are the owners of our lives. We will do what we please. And when you're a tenant, though, and wanting to live life as if you're the owner of your life, then what will make you really angry? I mean, what will really set you off when you're pretending to be the owner? It's when somebody shows up and says, hey, you aren't the owner. Then what happens? We tend to get angry. We tend to get angry. For, you know, this is what, what happens with my kids, and I apologize for using a, ch- a parenting illustration, but this is so apropos because our, the kids are so great at, at displaying this. You see, you know what my kids, when I, when I assert my authority as the, their, their father and I tell them what to do, and I say, hey, hey, stop what you're doing and go clean your room. You know what? They, they're not really ever mad at me for, for, for trying to be the authority in their life, for giving them a command. They're, they're quite happy. They're happy, simply happy to just ignore me to just kind of live as if dad wasn't there, I didn't hear dad. They show no animosity towards me at all when I first give a command. But, in fact, my my two littlest kids will kind of look at me with a smirk on their face and they kind of look, it's almost as if they look at each other and go, isn't it cute that he thinks he can tell us what to do? (laughs) But what happens, if you as parents know this, what happens when I get husky? When I say, hey, when they don't obey me and I get down and and I go, Stop what you're doing and go clean your room. What happens to little children when you confront their sense of self-autonomy? They get really mad. You, you incur their wrath. 
Because what have you done? You have confronted the worldview that is in their life that says, I am in charge. And anybody who confronts that worldview is going to be inflicted with swords and knives. In the parable, Jesus actually says that the owner of the vineyard sends servants to gather the profits of the vineyards. They're living like, oh, we're the boss, we own this place, and until someone shows up and says, hey, you know, he owns this, and he planted it, and he protects it, and he has done everything that is necessary, and all you had to do was literally pull some grapes off of it and give it to us, and we pay you for that. And they go, no, 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 we're the owners here. And what does it say that they do? In fact, it says there's the, the, the owner sends not one, not two, but three servants, and each time they beat up the servants. Now, the, the reality here is what Jesus is referring to is to Israelite history. It is well known, the Israelite history, that their relationship with the prophets did not go so well. That what Jesus is referring to is the servants here are the prophets of the Old Testament, and then John the Baptist, those who showed up and called the people out and said, hey, you've rejected God's law in this way, this way, and this way. You have, removed, you have rejected God's kingship and his authority in your life, and now you need to come back. And what is their reaction to the prophets? Well, let me just, let's just walk through the history of the prophets, just, just real briefly. Let's take Jeremiah. Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions and then eventually thrown into a pit and stoned. That didn't go well. Elijah and Amos were banished and forced to hide in caves in 1 Kings 13. Ezekiel was murdered after a sermon. That's a bad Sunday at church. Zechariah and Habakkuk both were stoned by the Jews living in Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah got chased in the temple and was stoned at the altar of God's. Another bad day at church. Also, there was a prophet named Uriah who prophesied around the same time as Jeremiah. In fact, he hated being in Israel so much that when Israel was taken away by the Assyrians, he decided, I want to go with them. And yet the king of Israel said, I'm going to chase you all the way into exile, bring you back to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to kill you here. And then lastly, there's Isaiah. Poor Isaiah. Poor Isaiah. Isaiah is put into a hollowed out log, a tree log, and then the tree is sawed in two with him in it. It, did not, it was not a magic trick that went well. It ended Isaiah's life. Now, in order to feel the full weight of what Jesus is saying here, we have to see the second parable in the context of the first parable. This is the only time I'm going to talk about that first parable about the two sons. But in the first parable, there are two sons, and we have this kind of odd scene. It goes rather quickly. Where the father goes to the first son, he says, hey, go and do such and such for me. And what does the first son say to the father's authority? Yeah, I don't think so, dad. But what happens? The son repents, and eventually he goes and he obeys the father. Then, then the father goes to another son, probably the older son, and he says to the older brother, what does he do? He says, he says son, I want you to go do X, Y, and Z for me. And the, the older brother says, he's the compliant one. He says, oh, of course, father, I will do exactly what you tell me to do. And yet he walks away and he does not obey. Now, what is Jesus? And then turns to the crowd and he asks them this question Who obeyed? And wouldn't you know they get it right? They said the first son. Now, okay, let's go back to our scene of Jesus, the, the prosecutor, the investigator. He's in the pretrial discovery. He's sitting across from you. He's now tricked you. Uh oh. He gives you a scene. There's two sons. Who obeyed the father? And you say, Well, I have to answer the, the first son obeyed the father. And then Jesus says this. And then Jesus said, truly I say to you, this is verse 31 and 32, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus says this. Let me make this very perfectly clear. The prostitutes and the tax collectors will get in the kingdom of God before the chief priests and the Pharisees and the, and the, and the scribes. He, they're going to get in before the good people and the moral people. Why? They are the people who, the, the, what he's saying is this, is that the first brother, are, the first brother in the parable are the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes. They're the ones who look at God's authority and they say, oh, you're going to tell me what to do with my sexuality? No, no, I'm going to become a prostitute. They've rejected God's authority. Oh, you're going to talk, talk to me about what it looks like to love my neighbor? No, I'm going to become a mob boss-like tax collector. But when the, when, the, when, the, when the servants show up, when the father confronts him, what does they do? They repent. The first son says, I'm not going to obey you. He rejects the father's authority, but then they repent and they go and obey. And yet the second son, that is, what does the second son do? The second son does not repent. Because here's what, what this text is saying. What it matters here in, the, in this parable is repentance. Jesus says this odd thing about John the Baptist, about how the, the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes received John the Baptist, but the, the, the Pharisees did not. What is it that is so important to John the Baptist? What's the message of John the Baptist that the Pharisees and the tax, I mean, the Pharisees, not the, not the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes accepted? What was the, 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 the thrust of John the Baptist's message? Repent. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Matthew 3, 11, John says, I baptize you with the water for repentance. Luke 3, 3, and he, John, went to all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. In other words, what the first parable is saying is this, is you have all rejected God's authority. The question is, when I come to the second question that I'm confronting you with, is yes, I already know you've rejected God's authority. The question is, will you repent? Will you repent? It doesn't matter what your past record is. The issue here now is repentance. Now, this helps us understand the second parable. You see, the first parable, we have the second son, and the second parable is essentially about the second brother. It's about the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes. In fact, they know this, right? Because at the end, they say, huh, I think the second parable is about us. Uh-oh. Now, this allows us to feel the weight of the prophetic and prosecutorial voice of Jesus as he is laying out the evidence of rejection before the crowd. To the parable spoken to the moral and religious people, he is speaking to the Israelites and the religious leaders, and he is pointing out their consistent history that not only have they rejected God's authority in their life, but when God had the audacity to send those who would confront them for that rejection of their authority, they killed them. Why? Because moral people can't be confronted with their sin. Because the self-righteous who build their lives upon their own righteousness cannot dare allow someone to confront them about their life. Let me give you an example of this. In 1859, Charles Spurgeon, which many of you may know is maybe the, he's the most profound and, and notorious or great preacher of, of British history, was preparing for a six-month preaching tour through America as a means of raising money for his church in London as they were seeking to build a new sanctuary. In the course of planning for the trip, uh, Spurgeon's in New York City, and he's kind of working out all of his different destinations that he's going to go preach, and he, he spoke. He met with a pastor from the American South. Remember, this is 1859. And he asked the pastor, 
Should, he, should Spurgeon go and preach in the South, even though as a part of that, as a part of the cause of repentance, that he's going to call the South to put an end to their slave, slavery? And the pastor said with great understatement that Spurgeon had better not undertake the task of preaching in the South. In fact, here's actually the response of the South when they found out that Spurgeon would even dare possibly come their way. The Montgomery, Alabama newspaper, when they found out that Spurgeon was considering preaching in their state, said this, Spurgeon would receive a beating so bad as to make him ashamed. We trust that the works of the greasy, cockney vociferator may receive the same treatment throughout the South. And if the pharisaical author should ever show himself in these parts, we trust that a stout cord may speedily find his, its way around his elegant throat. You should probably read more history about the South. Because that's, that's the primary newspaper in Montgomery, Alabama, run by church-going Christians. By the way, they repeated those same voices in the 20s and in the 60s. What happens, what happens when the religious people, the church-going people, get confronted with their sin? They threaten to kill people is what happens. I continue. By 1860, the slave-owning pastors of the South said this, they foamed with such rage because they could not get their hands on a youthful Spurgeon. His life was threatened. They would have book burnings. His sermons were censured. And below the Mason-Dixon line, the media catalyzed character assassinations of Spurgeon. In Florida, Spurgeon was a beef-eating, puffed-up, vain, over-righteous, pharisaical, English blabmouth. In Virginia, he was a fat, overgrown boy. In Louisiana, he was a hell-deserving Englishman. And in South Carolina, a vulgar young man with a soiled, sleek hair, prominent teeth, and a self-satisfied air. Georgians, oh, uh uh-oh, Georgians were encouraged to pay no attention to him, and North Carolinians would like a good opportunity to get at this hypocritical preacher, they said. So let's say it was consistent. And what is it? What do we know of the South in the 18th century? Everybody went to church. And yet when confronted by their sin, what's the attitude of the self-righteous and the morally those on their high horse when they are confronted with their sin will kill you, will kill you. It's the same attitude that we, I get from my two-year-olds, except far more dangerous as it grows up. Jesus is confronting this very difficult truth for us religious people and moral types that we tend to be the ones who are most hostile, hostile to the truths and the calls to repentance because there is nothing that will make moral religious types more angry than being confronted by their sin. That's the second question. We go to the third. The third question is this, is how are you responding to God's grace? The last part of the second parable has the owner of the vineyard. After having not one, Not two, but three servants rejected, beaten, and sent back to the owner empty-handed. He then sends his son to collect. Now, at this point, if you're a commentator, or if you're thinking about what the original audience would have heard when he gives this parable, the most intelligent readers find this parable. We have now entered into the world that is kind of rather far-fetched. I mean, think about this. 
Parables are supposed to be kind of about a real life events. And so there are real life events where someone would actually send someone to collect on a debt and they, they, somebody doesn't like them collecting on a debt. And yet, if you were to send one, two, three servants to collect on that debt and they're all beaten and they're sent back, who would send your son to go and collect them the debts? Only a fool would do that. So why, why would the owner, why would the owner send his son and put him in harm's way to collect the debts? This is ridiculous. Why would he do this? These guys have shown over and over again that they will attack, that they're hostile, that they can't be trusted. What should he do? What should the owner do? The owner should get together a posse of the law. He should enter into the vineyard. He should put an end to these usurpers. He should kick them out, perhaps put them to death. He should bring the law, the fullness of the law to bear upon them. And yet, what does he do? He sends his son. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that if you're the owner? Here's the answer. It's because this owner, representing God, is not functioning like a businessman who is mainly concerned about his profits. If he wanted his property, if he wanted the fruits of his labor, that he could have simply brought the law in and put an end to these people and taken hold of his vineyard, but that's not what he does. So he must want something more than the vineyard. What does he want? He wants the tenants. He wants them. In fact, it says this, when the owner says, perhaps they will respect my son. In other words, perhaps they will be restored into right relationship with me and with my son. What he is after here is not ultimately the fruits of the vineyard, although that's important to him. What he's after and what he desires and why he sends the son and puts him at risk is because he wants a relationship with the tenants, even after all of this. In other words, there's a gospel message here. You see, it says it in Romans 5, verse 8, that while we were yet sinners, when we were hostile to God, when we were tenants, kicking out all those who would call us to repentance, it says this, what did God do? God sent his son to die for us. That's called grace, brothers and sisters. See, the religious leaders, the crowd, as they hear this parable, they are supposed to see why Jesus came. Jesus is telling them a message. There's a son who has come, And they are supposed to be moved by the fact that the owner, that God the Father, that Yahweh, even though they have rejected his authority, and then when he sent prophets to call them to repentance, they rejected that, that they're supposed to see that now, oh my goodness, look at the goodness of Yahweh, that he would then send his son to call us back. Yet in response to our foul hearts, this is what God has done. So the question is, how are you responding to God's offer of free grace? Let me ask you this, how did the original audience respond Verse 45 and 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. What did they want? Actually, in Luke and in Mark, it actually is more clear. It says they're looking for a way to arrest him so they could put him to death. In other words, the only thing that the human heart hates more than God's authority and God's call to repentance is the offer of God's grace. You notice if you read the text carefully, you'll see that as time goes on, every messenger who comes, the, the tenants get a little bit meaner and meaner and meaner. Right? When the son finally shows up, they finally kill him. Why, why do we reject grace? Who, like, it's, it doesn't amaze you that we, God would love us like this and be so patient and kind, and yet we even reject his grace? Well, we, we reject it, one, because it offends our pride, doesn't it? 
Grace says you have nothing to offer. It cuts at our self-righteousness. Christian counselor Dan Allender said this, that the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing, and no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. Did you hear that? The cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing, and no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. But grace also brings us full circle on the authority of God, right? Some years ago, I heard the, the, the story of a pastor who had a conversation with a woman, and, 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 and she, she, she came up to this pastor after a particular sermon, and she said this, all this talk about salvation, about sheer grace, is very threatening to me. See, I like the old way I remember about religion. You're saved by being a good person. She, he said, why? She, well, she said, the implications of salvation by grace alone means I have no rights. If I'm saved because I'm a good person, then God owes me something. But if I'm saved by grace alone, then all my life is possessed by him and I owe him everything. In other words, what, are we, what happens? We've come full circle, haven't we? He's the authority. He has given us all things. We owe him everything. We reject it. In his grace, he calls us back to him. In other words, what I was saying to Noah earlier, this beautiful truth that God created you. He said, you're mine. I have made all the world. It's all yours. Now serve me as the authority and king over you. We reject it. But he comes and he says, I will redeem you. I will ransom you from your sin. And he says, I have bought you with a price. You are not your own. If, that, if that's the case, then it means you have to do what he says. Grace actually calls you back into God's authority. But let me go one step further. The Bible teaches how terrible the natural human heart is, how much we hate God's authority, how much we hate God's calls to repentance, and how much we hate God's grace that would bring us back to him. And so what does that tell us about the human hearts? If we hate God's authority, we hate his calls to repentance and return to him, and we hate his offer of free grace that would bring us back to him, what does it say about, about how we feel about God? We hate him. Jesus slides a piece of paper across the desk in the investigation and says, all the evidence to these questions say you hate God. You say, what evidence? What evidence is it that we hate God? Well, the one, here, here's an evidence from history. The one time that God made himself so vulnerable that we could get our hands on him, what do we do with him? We put him on a cross. That's some pretty damning evidence that we hate God. So Welcome. It's a tough Sunday. I want to end, though, with a word of warning and then a word of hope. Here's how the text ends, verse 42 and verse 43. Jesus says to them, have you never read the scriptures, which, right, that's a slam in the face. These are the Pharisees who memorized the scriptures. The scribes literally would write the scriptures over and over and over again. They knew the scriptures. And he said this, the stone, this is from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is putting before us both a warning and a hope. He's saying, listen, when it comes to me, He's the, he's the chief cornerstone, the capstone. The capstone was a, was a huge piece of rock that they put at the, that the foundation of a building would be established. And when you had it as your capstone, a good one, would, you would have a very symmetrical building. But if, you, if a huge rock landed on you, it crushes you. It's a bad day at work. 
destroys you. And what Jesus is saying is this. You will either be crushed by me, the stone, or you will build your whole life on me, the stone. Either I will be the authority in your life who will give direction to how the house of your life is built, or I will fall on you and crush you in my judgments. There's nothing in the middle. There is a warning here. Jesus says that those who reject me will be crushed by me. Do you understand that? You might say, this is, this, this is not what happened to, um, hey, let me give you some knowledge about the word and a cool story and the gospel at the end. What happened? That's your pattern, Andrew. We like that. That's why we come. And here you are, you're warning. You're scaring me. And the answer is absolutely yes. Warnings are meant to scare George MacDonald said this sometime during his life. He said, God, thy will be, we'll say, either God, thy will be done, I am not my own, or else at the end of time, Jesus will look at you and say, all right, if it's your will be done, then you can have it your way. You can go and you can hold yourself up. You wanted to be in charge of your life, so now you have it. And that's a place called hell, when you get your way. That's the warning here, but there's also a word of hope. There's a word of hope. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 when he talks about this capstone the builders have rejected, and there's a paradox in Psalm 118. It's talking about this stone that is beautiful, that is, but it's rejected. It's rejected. It's tossed aside, and they're saying, no, no, we don't want this stone to be the foundation of our building in our lives. We're going to toss it to the side, but that rejection is actually the very catalyst for redemption and hope in Psalm 118. In other words, that God will take this rebellion and will use it for good. Here's the beautiful truth for us today who are reading this. It's, it's an odd place to be. We're reading about a people who heard a story from Jesus. So, and they're responding to that story. So we have a, Jesus is telling a story, the Pharisees and the scribes, they respond to it badly. And now we, though, have an opportunity to respond to the story of the Pharisees responding to the story. Do you get it? In other words, yes, God is putting a warning out there. But the very fact, the very thing, the, the rejection of the stone, Jesus himself, by the Pharisees and the religious people of his day that put him on a cross, that has now become the very means for the story for you to say, yes, I deserve for the capstone to fall on me in judgment, and yet grace is still there for me. If I would reach out and receive and embrace it, the worst rebellion, crucifying the Son of God, has led to the most impossible and beautiful good. And so we can now look at this and we can say, in my real life, the question is, will I reject the capstone? Will I reject God's authority? Will I reject God's cause to repentance? And will I reject the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or, or will I come to the altar? And say, nothing in my hands I bring. I simply come, and you are my lifeblood. You are the bread that I eat. Religious people, let down your religion and come and partake of the truth with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Those who are serving communion can come forward. We prepare our hearts to take this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your unbelievable grace and mercy that was displayed in Jesus. Lord, we come as a people and we come and confess that we have rejected your authority, that we have rejected your calls to repentance time and time again. 
And perhaps there are these and those in this room who have rejected your grace, but we thank you. We thank you that through the rejection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, you have brought redemption and hope to bear possibly for us. And so, gracious God, as we come to remember your rejection, the rejection of your son, which has made it possible for us to come back into your family, I pray that we would come with repentance. I pray that we would come with nothing in our hands, that we would lay aside all of our righteousness and cling only to the righteousness of Jesus, to the grace of God who beckons us home who beckons us to build our lives upon him. And so, well, we come to build our lives on you to say you're our very lifeblood. Without your, you as our food, we would die. And so we set aside the simple bread and the simple cup, the things that represent your body and when you were broken and rejected and when you shed your blood to cleanse and wash us clean. We set these things aside and we ask that you would pronounce again and anew the beauty of your grace to us and that we would fall at our feet once again, saying, embracing this. For all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.